Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Liebeter. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Today on the show, we're talking about something that is vital for all forms of life on the planet, water. And this is just in time for World Water Day coming up on Tuesday, which is a day dedicated to thinking about and re-evaluating the way that we use water. Now in Australia, the issue of water is a big one. We're the driest continent on the planet, well, aside from Antarctica, so we're no stranger to drought. If anything, we're in quite a serious relationship with drought. And it was just under four years ago that the Minister for Agriculture at the time, Joe Ludwig, declared the millennium drought over slash no more federal funding for drought support. That drought completely changed the way we thought about water. It ran for over 15 years. That's more than half my lifetime. Everything we did had to change. I'm talking restricting water use, what we used for irrigation. Then there's methods like dams, which have had a really big part to play in this. And we essentially had to rewrite the rule book for ways to use water. But we're not out of the woods yet, or out of the desert, with something like climate change becoming more pressing. I don't doubt that there's another drought on the horizon for Australia. And maybe not just for Australia, there's in fact a pretty intense drought going on at the moment over the other side of the world, in California. Well, the drought situation in California has been occurring for some time now, about half a decade actually. Uh, Drought first hit around 2011. And so, you know, during the period of 2011-2014 and since, um, there's reduced rainfall, reduced snowmelt because they're quite dependent on snowfall and um, the snowpack in the north for water resources. Um, And this is, you know, increasingly led to pressure on agriculture in particular, um, but also on cities as well. That's Joanne Chong. She's a research director from the Institute of Sustainable Futures at UTS. Joanne was also one of the researchers behind the Managing Drought Report, which provides an overview of events and initiatives formed during Australia's millennium drought. The report, Joanne says, might give California some insight into their current drought crisis. Well, there are some statistics of before the drought. California, on average, I think it was... 2005 or something like that, um, the average water use per person across all of California was more than 400 litres a day. And to give some comparison to that, during Australia's drought, in some of our cities, we managed to get our water use down to less than 200 litres a person a day. But that said, I can't tie it all with the same brush. Um, California is very diverse in some locations, such as San Francisco, they use less than 200 litres a day as well per person. And of course, you know, we're talking about before drought, so it's not acknowledging all the efforts um, that have gone in place during drought. So there definitely have been improvements in that sense in terms of Californians rallying to reduce water use in houses. There have been many programs. But the history was that there were voluntary programs introduced to start off with. Um, The governor introduced voluntary targets and they, they weren't successful, that voluntary approach. So they stepped up and decided to implement a slightly more mandatory, a little bit more regulated approach to really try and get some of these water savings in in households. Four years into the drought, California is implementing solutions. But before 2011, water conservation wasn't really on the agenda. 
it was for the first time ever that the governor actually decreed, if you like, that we need to have mandatory statewide water reduction targets. And I mean, Australia during previous droughts, we've always had um, some kind of restrictions or water efficiency program, demand management programming. But really, this was the first time in California where they've established these kinds of targets. I mean, we did look on the urban side and we were looking at water efficiency, but at a bigger picture level, obviously there are many debates at the moment in terms of what supply is appropriate and how to balance between other sorts of users as well. With water conservation now well on the agenda, what solutions are they looking at? As I mentioned, they have already focused on things like lawns because a lot of that water use was on, was on lawns. Um, but it's very much the indoor, at a household level, it's the indoor water use efficiency programs that they're particularly interested in and where, and again, it varies across California, um, where there's opportunities to further savings. I mean, this is, it's at a very basic level, but we do use quite a lot of water indoors as well. It's not just outdoor use. Um, it relates to the nature of our fittings, um, you know, whether it's our toilets, our taps, our showers, um, and our appliances as well. Australia um, had many uh, advances during the drought of, of encouraging people to, to change over when they changed over their appliances, be that washing machines, to increase the water efficiency of those machines. So it's really about transforming the stock, the, the technologies that we use in our homes that use water. Um, taps an old-fashioned technology, but it is possible to have more water-efficient fittings inside. So that's a key area. And and they're interested in a, in a level of detail and, you know, we were a, um, privileged, I guess, to work quite closely with all the water utilities across Australia, um, state governments, local councils as well, on some of the details on how you roll out these programs. What does it, what does it involve? You know the end point, which is about trying to encourage people to change both water use behaviour and their fittings, you know, but what are some of the details? Is it about having audits? How do you involve plumbing associations? How do you involve manufacturers of water efficient appliances? And when working with manufacturers, Joanne says the choice of infrastructure needs to be carefully considered. When most of us, and, and my, myself as well, when you, when you think about you know a drought and water, particularly for surface water-fed areas like Australia, we think of dams. We think, well, it's about storages. We need to build a big dam. And many people will be familiar with the various issues around um, dams as well. But you know, going forward, there are many, many types of innovative infrastructure at different scales as well. So it is not just about large-scale infrastructure. It's potentially about quite small-scale infrastructure that can re use water, whether it be stormwater, grey water, even sewer mining for non-potable uses so far in Australia anyway. And these can be smaller scale. They can potentially be implemented quicker, not always, but can be. And they have certain benefits compared to the large scale ones. If you have a more modular system, you're able to stage potentially. You can avoid against um, technological lock-in, which is a really important aspect in terms of, you know, how fast technology is progressing these days. So, you know, if you have something really big, you've locked in the technology for the next, whatever, 20, 30, 50 years, because you have smaller scale modular options that you can either roll out during drought or roll out during drought for the next several years, then, then it gives you a lot more flexibility, can potentially save you costs and allows your system to be more flexible in how you go about um, supplying water to, to people in a city. But for the right infrastructure to be put into place, everyone needs to be on board. 
during the drought, it was really about all water using sectors who were involved in reducing their water use. And this was facilitated in many instances by the utilities, by councils, by state and also federal government in some cases. And that is a sense of everyone in it together to save water. And that's a nice thing to say, but also at a program level and an investment level, it really means having programs that target households, having programs that target high water using households as well, and trying to make sure that they're fair so that they're not perceived as, oh, people can buy their way out of these water saving programs. And also don't just target the residential sector, but also work with businesses to try and encourage savings as well so that households don't necessarily feel that it's just a household obligation. And in the business sector. In many states in Australia, the utilities worked directly with water using businesses to establish water management plans. So unlike a household, it's not about, you know, you can't predict that it'll be a toilet, a shower and tap, that kind of thing, because all water using businesses are different. So it's about the process of working with businesses to identify and audit their water use and really tailor some solutions that are fit for that business, depending on how they use water, but also um, potentially save the business quite some money as well, because water is a cost. This isn't California's first drought, nor likely their last. And the same applies to Australia, with Joanne saying there's still a way to go to prevent drought in the future. Although here in Sydney we might not have had drought during the current El Nino, we know many parts of New South Wales, rural New South Wales, rural Queensland, southern states, Western Australia have been experiencing very dry conditions in some areas. Um, and it hasn't perhaps affected some of the capital cities as much as in the previous drought. But given the projections of climate change, unfortunately, you know, it is likely that Australia will experience some kind of drought again. I mean, but drought is not just a state of how much it's raining. It's also drought is about how well prepared you are for it. In terms of if there are declining storages, it's partly because it might be raining less, but also what have you done to prepare for it? You know, whilst we're talking at this moment about potentially sharing some lessons to California, I think what we see emerging at at that that high level or global level is an appetite for researchers, for water utilities, for government agencies, for private sector and for communities across the globe in different countries to really form partnerships and networks to help understand what to do in drought and to learn from each other. So for those networks to form and improve water security across the globe, it's, it's really good potential there. That was Joanne Chong, a research director from the Institute of Sustainable Futures at UTS. Where does your water come from? Like when you turn on the tap to grab a drink of water or have a shower, wash your cat? You wash your cat? (laughs) Well, we did once when he had a paralysis tick. It was not fun. I'm surprised you still have a cat. (laughs) (laughs) So what? Like dams, rivers, rainfall? Well, you're forgetting one. Groundwater. So is that exactly what it is? Mm, Yep. And uh, it's actually pretty awesome. I swear, every week on the show, it's turning into Ellen's latest sustainability fad. (laughs) But I did spend the better part of an hour today zooming in on a map of Australia's groundwater resources. It's really cool. You can see, like, the salinity levels and the water levels. Anyway, look it up on the Bureau of Meteorology site. But when you look at the big picture, groundwater makes up 2% of the Earth's entire water. 
Am I meant to be surprised by that? 2% seems like peanuts. Well, 0.1% of the Earth's water is rivers and lakes, and compare that to 94% of it, which is oceans, and the rest is frozen. Well, frozen, not for long. But okay, so groundwater is pretty vital to our survival. Here's Derek Emus, Professor of Environmental Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney, to give us a crash course in groundwater. Groundwater is really water that sits underground, in, and a lot of people think of it as an underwater, an underground lake, but it actually flows, so I guess a better analogy would be it's an underwater river, and it might be 5 metres below the ground surface, it might be 50 metres, it might be 250 metres below the surface. How do we get the groundwater to the surface? Well, there are three ways. The first is sometimes groundwater naturally discharges into rivers and streams. And so what we see as a river and stream is often groundwater. Another way is to sink a bore. And a lot of pastoral industry and landowners drop a bore into the groundwater and pump the water out. And that's where the term bore water comes from. That is where bore water comes from. And it's used by a lot of people to irrigate crops. It's used by a lot of people to water their cattle, for example, all across arid and semi-arid Australia. What's the percentage, do we know the percentage of water use in Australia that comes from groundwater? Now, I should know the answer to that, but off the top of my head, I don't. But it varies a lot uh, region to region. Perth as a city, I think, has about 60% or 70% of its drinking water is actually accessed from the bores, from the groundwater. Is it is it drinkable? In a very large number of cases, it's very high-quality water. In some cases, it's got salt in it, so you have to remove the salt. Where does this groundwater actually come from? So groundwater is recharged through rainfall, but there are some places where the rainfall falls and will go into groundwater relatively quickly, but in some places the rainfall is collected by the soil and never reaches the groundwater because vegetation uses it or it simply runs off-site. So... Is bore water a sustainable resource? Does it refill? So that's a really good question, and it does refill, but it can take a very long time to refill. Groundwater in some places is many, many, many thousands of years old, and that tells us we're actually mining water that fell many thousands of years ago. So it can be used sustainably. Unfortunately, across a lot of Australia, it is not being managed sustainably and we're taking it out far faster than it has been replaced. If you say we're using brown water unsustainably, is that just humans taking more than is being put back into That's exactly the point, yes, and we are using it. And if you look across many states of Australia, the the pressure in some groundwater systems is dropping. And if the pressure is not dropping, the level of the groundwater, the depth of the groundwater is increasing. So it is getting harder and harder to extract because we're taking it out too quickly. What are we doing to manage groundwater? One of the things that's been done, it's a federal initiative, and that is to um, cover the pipes and the conduits that we use to move groundwater around. And that reduces the evaporation and reduces the losses and we're also we're putting caps on bores and stopping them free-flowing because there's a lot of free-flowing groundwater and that just evaporates and gets wasted. And also we're starting to put metres on groundwater bores so we can actually measure how much different people are taking out. What does happen if we use too much groundwater? Talking about in nature, not, not for humans. Well, in nature you'll see streams drying up, you'll see river flows uh, drying up. 
you'll see some of the uh, great artesian basin spring mounds drying up, and we're already seeing that across Queensland and other states. So we will see changes in the vegetation structure. We will see mortality in forests. We'll see changes in the ecosystem health because we've taken the major resource that they need, which is the groundwater. You mentioned we're already seeing this in Queensland. Is it going to get worse across Australia or have we picked up this problem in time? I think we've made great strides, great positive steps forward for managing groundwater. So I'm cautiously optimistic, as the phrase is, and I think we are far better at managing our groundwater extraction. And it's now in the legislation that if you extract groundwater commercially, you have to show that you're not going to damage ecosystems. So I think we're doing much better than we did 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. For a city like Perth, who you said 60 to 70 percent of the population is reliant on groundwater for for drinking, drinking. will we be able to sustain a growing population in Perth with a reliance on groundwater? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, It is possible that we can't sustain a very large population increase. If you look at what's happened in uh, Western Australia, there's been a significant decline in rainfall and there's been a significant increase in extraction in groundwater. We're probably at the point where there's not a lot of scope left for increasing the population base of Western Australia. What, what do we do in that case? Where does Western Australia get their water from? Well, they have, of course, invested in a desalination plant. So you can take seawater, take the salt out and create an awful lot of fresh water for drinking. It is, of course, very expensive and very energy intensive process. Australia isn't the only place that's reliant on groundwater. How are we managing it in other countries? Well, it's highly variable. Um, I know for a fact that, for example, northern China has got a real problem with its groundwater. The groundwater depth there has been increasing 30, 40, 50, 60 metres, so it's getting harder and harder to extract. They have come to the realisation they have to manage their groundwater better. Other places, America has a similar problem. Flows into some of the biggest rivers in America have been affected by over-extraction. The Rio Grande is a classic example. And does mining have any impact it can have a major impact because if you a lot of mining activities will intersect that means they will cut through an aquifer and what mean what that means is the groundwater will fill the mine up and obviously they won't allow that to happen so they have to pump the water out to keep the mine dry and that water is often then discharged possibly inappropriately so mining can have an impact on groundwater they also use a lot of water in the uh, cleaning process you said you're cautiously optimistic about Australia's groundwater usage. Looking forward 50, 100 years, will we still have groundwater? Oh, undoubtedly we'll have groundwater. Undoubtedly, there's a lot of it there. The question is, can to what extent can we manage it better and be more efficient in its use? And I think we are getting better every year. We are doing things much, much more smartly. Is there anything else we can be doing? One of the key questions we need to answer is just how sensitive are groundwater-dependent ecosystems? And I think at the moment we're not very good at answering that fundamental question. What do ecosystems do when you take groundwater away? So I think we need to see a lot more effort going to understanding and answering that question.
Derek Emus, Professor of Environmental Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR. Today, we're talking water ahead of World Water Day on Tuesday. And one thing I'm keen to know about you, Ellen, you're on board with your compost at home, but what about a rainwater tank? Do you have one? Well, actually not. We don't actually have a rainwater tank at home, but I do know Papa Lee Bear that catches the rainwater <laughs> at his work to wash his trucks. Good to hear. Well, rainwater tanks are one of the major ways today that we conserve our water, and there's been a lot of hype around them in recent years, but are they more work than they're worth? Here's Candice Delaney. She's a senior research consultant from the Institute of Sustainable Futures at UTS. Yeah, well, it's placing less pressure on our mains water supply, so... We have a source of water that can be captured and harvested. It's decentralised. It goes straight to the home. We can pipe it locally. There's a cost savings from a perspective of we don't need the pipes to get the water there. But we need to be capturing water, particularly in drought and minimising pressure from low dam levels wherever we can. And if rainwater tanks can offer a broad decentralised option of capturing water, using it in the home, keeping it local. That's a cost saving and it's a water saving. How popular are rainwater tanks today? That's a great question. I mean, we can only use proxies to go by how popular things are. There haven't been rebates since 2011 because they haven't been offered by the New South Wales government. So we have no real indicators of uptake since 2011. But I think socially... There's a growing awareness that we need to become water-conscious citizens and I think rainwater tanks are often a symbol of, of how we can do that in practice. Whether that actually results in water savings is a different issue. But there's also a lot of things that go into that, so it's a bit more complicated than just having a tank. It's interesting that you say there hasn't been a rebate in that time because we've got a government that's kind of switched on about innovation and, I guess, sustainability to an extent So wouldn't we assume within that that we'd see policy trying to get people even more switched on about using rainwater tanks? Well, we have had rebates up until 2011. So it's only in the last four or five years that we haven't had rebates for tanks. But I guess that's because we haven't had a drought. Well, we have had a drought, but I guess not as extensive as the one in the early 2000s, which really saw dam levels drop significantly. And the New South Wales government really seeing the need to do something to promote water savings in any way they can. So, I mean, I think it's it's a very we're, we're very responsive to to the weather, to the drought. So, when we have a drought, when we have a long drought, I think we start to see these policies and these rebates come about. What do people use their rainwater for today? Many different things. In the research that we've done at ISF, we can see that there's a huge diversity in the way rainwater tank is used across households. And to think that there's a common set of practices or a common attitude towards rainwater is a bit oversimplified. If we look at marketing and how rainwater tanks are marketed, it's generally for outdoor use. So it's a way to grow your veggie patch, water your garden, particularly during droughts, to wash your car. A lot of these practices are frowned upon during drought. But if you have a rainwater tank, it's almost a way to be able to keep doing these things that you're used to doing. So we see a lot of tanks connected outdoors, not so many indoors. But again, this is geographically dependent. So we've done a few different studies. And for example, in one part of New South Wales, 
there's very low connections uh, inside, particularly to the washing machine and the toilet, which are the both both of the indoor connections. Whereas in other parts of the state, you can see high levels of indoor connection. So it, it varies greatly. You said that it's kind of hard to narrow down an attitude to rainwater in just one single way. What do you mean by that? Is it when using rainwater inside, some people might want to use it in the toilet, some people might not. Is that kind of along those lines? Yeah. I mean, I think there are, there are technological and social and cultural reasons for why people do or don't use rainwater. Uh, for many people, the technology just breaks down and doesn't provide an adequate perceived quality of water to carry out everyday practices. For other people, it's the way they were raised. You know, was rainwater something that is appropriate for that particular action? Is rainwater perceived as clean enough to be washing clothes or to be doing other things that happen indoors? Or is it something due to the conceptualization of rainwater that is better placed for outdoors? The social side of rainwater tanks is often overlooked. It's it's very much seen as a technical issue. So install the tank and the tank will be used. But there's a whole lot of invisible social and cultural influences behind the scenes that have been developed throughout our lives that we're not even aware of. I mean, our relationship with water is quite emotional, whether we realise it or not. And so when it comes to a new source of water, like a rainwater tank, there are a whole lot of social and cultural influences going on for us that really determine how we use water and I think in in policy and uh, water savings programs that promote rainwater tanks the importance of that social side has not been recognized and I think it's a huge part of the problem of why we're not using rainwater tanks to their full potential. And in your research as well it was found that at least 60 percent of rainwater tanks in fact don't work Is that because of this lack of maintenance or attention to the tanks? Well, in modelling we did in a a part of uh, New South Wales, we found that up to 50% of tanks weren't working. And I think this is for a range of reasons. And this is what's really critical, is there hasn't been a great deal of research to investigate why tanks aren't functioning. How long does it take for a tank to start not working as efficiently as it should. Is it a complete breakdown or are there certain things that happen along the way that lead to a complete breakdown? We really need to understand this a lot better if we're going to improve tank uptake, tank use and and water saving through tanks because at the moment we don't have the answers to these questions. Another point is Mm -hmm. that there are people who have a rainwater tank and perhaps more so in rural areas and are completely off the water grid and solely rely on using that water that they collect from rainwater. But maybe more so in urban metropolitan areas, there's a half on, half off. They use rainwater where they can, but they're still connected to whatever, maybe to use the water for their shower or use it for their toilet. Is that problematic, that half on, half off? I think it's interesting because you're right, people who have grown up in rural areas who are tank dependent, all of their water source is sourced from their tank. It's not limitless. Whereas for people in urban areas, it is limitless. There's a perception of limitless supply. So I think what comes with that is a different set of practices and a different set of attitudes around rainwater and how we can apply it in the home. I think the difficulty is for urban households to bridge that gap in understanding 
well, broad, not necessarily understanding, but broadening the range of possible practices that rainwater can be a part of a practice instead of just relying on on mains water. We don't need mains water for all activities in the home, but because we don't know all of the reasons why rainwater may not be used for certain activities, whether it's cultural reasons, whether it's you know a perceived dirtiness, we have to understand this to be able to then whether it's through um, marketing programs or education, to be able to bridge rainwater with household practices a little more so that they resemble sort of what happens in in more rural contexts. If we're going to move into another drought Mm. and we're facing the problems that we are now with our current tanks, you know, a lot of them not working Mm -hmm. or people not maintaining them in the right way, what is the future of water conservation going to look like? Well... It wouldn't involve tanks. I mean, if we're not going to really improve the functionality of tanks and we're going to keep putting rebates toward tanks and tanks not performing as they need to, we're not going to see water savings in tanks. But there is a huge potential there. We have all of this stock sitting in backyards, at least 60,000 tanks in the last decade. So the potential of rainwater tanks is huge especially if they're plumbed indoors, if they're connected to toilets, if they're connected to washing machines, if they're used for outdoor activities. But the quality has to be good. They have to be working. There has to be maintenance programs. And we have to better understand how people perceive rainwater and how it fits into their daily lives. So I think if we can, if we can tick a few boxes, then really rainwater tanks are an excellent way for the future because we have all of this stock there. We just need to improve how it's used. Candice Delaney, Senior Research Consultant from the Institute of Sustainable Futures at UTS. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SCR.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Liebeter. See you next week.